You may be seated. And let me see here. Is that on? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Oh, no. There, there it comes. Okay. Yeah, starting here. I tend to wander when I preach. Um, so I understand that uh, your pastor is taking you through a number of psalms this summer, and so when I was... Uh, in some conversation with him over the last month or so, I said, well, maybe I'll preach on a psalm. I just won't preach on one that you're preaching on. And so that's that's where I am today. And, um, I don't know if any of you have ever read the book by a man named Philip Yancey entitled The Bible Jesus Read. And it's a great book that uh, Yancey writes, and he talks about the Bible Jesus Read, which would be the Old Testament. And he looks at five different books of the Old Testament and kind of pulls those apart. And one of those books that he focuses on is the book of Psalms. And he makes the point that whereas most of the rest of Scripture is kind of top-down, God acting, God speaking, God teaching, and the impact of what God is doing in the lives of his people through the history of the nation and those kinds of things, and all the way up into the New Testament where it's God who comes into this world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who dies on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, resurrection to eternal life, and then gets into some theology that is God teaching through people like Paul and others about what all of that means. That's what we have with most of Scripture, is that top-down. The Psalms, though, are more bottom-up. They are the very human, divinely inspired, but human expressions of all kinds of emotions and feelings and thoughts that are directed at the world around and directed to God. And so we have things like... Well, the opening call to worship, Psalm 148, words of a psalmist praising God, giving God glory in their psalms of thanks and awe before God. Uh, There are also some that we had in, in our prayer of confession, psalms that speak of our need to confess before God and, and those times of confession. There, there are psalms that, some of those psalms are in a very specific historical context, like David just fought a battle and encountered these people, and these were the words of David in the context of that. But there are others, too, that are much broader, questions about uh, you know things that go on in life and some despair and anxiety that goes on and questions like how long and why are you so forsaken my soul and 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 um, you know where is God in these things and and those are very human expressions that we find uh, throughout throughout the Psalms and some of those things that get expressed those human passions and feelings and emotions, are pretty strong. And in fact, in our psalm this morning, we're going to find something that's kind of, whoa, almost seems like it's over the top. And we we will unpack that as we go through it. So the psalm this morning is um, a psalm that speaks of just yearning and ache and, and passion and speaks very strongly. Psalm 137. Let's pray. Father, pour out your spirit now upon this, your holy word, and upon my words, that we might hear you speaking to us, to the honor and glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. 
So as my custom has been when I've been here, maybe you're getting used to that, to stand as an act of honor of the Word of God as we read. So I invite you, if you're able, to stand with me in honor of God's Word as I'm reading from the New International Version, Psalm 137. Listen to the Word of God. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, we will get to that last part of the psalm. It's there. But before that, we need to really um, understand that if, if, if we're looking at the Old Testament, it's critically important to, get a, to know the story of the Old Testament and where some of these things fit into that. And so if you've been in the church for any amount of time, this, is, this hopefully is um, stuff you've heard before. But we, it, it's always good to have a little refresher course. I, I could always use those reminders. And so um, let's go back, way back in the book of Genesis, you have the story of God calling Abraham and promising that Abraham will be the father of, of a great nation and he will bless, bless Abraham and his descendants and give them a land and all of that. And then um, about four generations later, his great, with his great-grandchildren, all that takes a big detour because his 12, uh, the 12 sons of Jacob end up going, having to go to Egypt in a time of famine in order to survive. And they end up staying there in Egypt for 400 years, during which time they become slaves of the Pharaoh in Egypt. 400 years later, though, God sends a deliverer in the person of Moses, who... Um, God empowers to lead the people out and it does that through a series of plagues, you know, making life difficult for the Egyptians, culminating in the death of the firstborn, that all the firstborn in Egypt would die except for those of God's people who did something in particular. And if you remember this story, kill the Passover lamb and spread the blood of the lamb over the doorposts and the angel would pass over them. And so that happened and the people were set free. They went off into the wilderness, wandered in the wilderness for another 40 years, during which time they had to learn what it was going to be like and how they had to live in the land. Once, once they got to the land, God gave them the law. Uh, at Mount Sinai and instructed them in that. And then after 40 years under the leadership of Joshua, they finally got into the promised land and Joshua conquered that. That whole Exodus story is critical to the identity of the Jews of the Old Testament. 
That's what defines who they are. That was their, and, and the Passover is kind of what sets them free and becomes the most important celebration every year to remember the Passover and how God delivered them from slavery. And in fact, throughout the Old Testament, God over and over identifies himself with that event. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's clearly um, an important, very, very important thing. And just as the Exodus story shapes or defines the Old Testament Jews, it also says something to us about our Christian faith. Because you see, as human beings, we are born into a fallen world where we are slaves. We are slaves to sin, and we can't do anything about that. But God has sent a deliverer to us in our sinful slavery. It's not Moses, but it's Jesus, who himself becomes the Passover lamb whose blood is shed on the cross by which we have forgiveness of our sins and we are set free and we are, we are granted a new life. A new life that um, is kind of a lot of times like wandering in the wilderness as we're trying to learn our way through all this and we have ups and downs just as they did. But we have the promise that there is a promised land of eternity in heaven for us. That is the Exodus story. But the Old Testament continues, you know, over, over a period of time, um, the people had their ups and downs. They went through a period of judges. And then King Saul st- established the kingdom. And that didn't end all that well. But then David became the king. And it was the golden age. And the great military, political, economic might. And all of that under David. And then you had David's son, Solomon. Still a great time. And under Solomon, the great temple in Jerusalem was built. But then after Solomon, things began to deteriorate and the nation divided into two. The ten northern tribes became the nation of Israel. The two southern tribes became the nation of Judah. And in the north, in Israel, there was not one single good king, godly king, just a whole. It was a mess. And finally, the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern tribes, took them and dispersed them to who knows where. And the southern kingdom of Judah continued for another 125 years or so until the nation of Babylon came in and conquered. And as you heard in the children's story, the the Babylonians came in and they destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and they took the people across from here to Montreal. Um, But, you know, in that part of the world and 500 miles across the desert and took them into Babylon as exiles where they would remain for 70 years. And it's in that context of exile that this psalmist writes this psalm. Imagine what you what it would be like if you were there, been taken out of your homeland, taken 500 miles across the, ocean, uh, across, across the, uh, the desert, and there you are and you look back. It's not a happy time. There's that weeping. By the waters of Babylon, we wept when we remembered and when we looked back. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while we are in a foreign land? He wants to go home, right? 
There's that strong yearning to go home. Now, the words of Jeremiah, though, as Jeremiah saw this happening, part of Jeremiah's prophecy to the people was the Old Testament re- lesson that we read earlier. Jeremiah said, look, when you go there, you've got to make a normal life. You've got to you know, build houses and plant gardens and get married and have children and, and even pray for the peace and the prosperity of that land because that's also going to be helpful for you. That's how Jeremiah calls them to live in that context. But even if they are living a pretty normal life, it's never going to be the same. Never going to be the same. They want to go home. And there's that yearning to go home. And just as the Exodus experience speaks into our Christian experience... So, too, the exile experience has something to say to us as Christians, because we find ourselves living in a foreign land under foreign domination. Now, there's several ways that we can kind of see how that happens, and particularly in the Western world um, and and from an American perspective, we can you know look back to um, how the promised land, if you will, of Western Christendom, where, you know, Western Europe and and all that we have gotten, you know, great time for Christianity. And even in this country, to whatever degree one might argue or say that it happens where this was a Christian nation in some ways, that we've lost all that. It's gone. And now the foreign land is upon us. And we are being dominated by that. And the signs of that are all around. You don't have to read a whole lot of newspaper or watch a whole lot of news or see what's going on. And we look around and it's not home. It's not home. There's so much there. And just as the Jewish exiles were teased by their tormentors to sing a song, you know, and make, make happy and all of that, we as Christians often find ourselves ridiculed or even marginalized for what we believe. Now, our lives may not be in danger, but certainly Christian values and and virtues and morals are in that way. There are other parts of the world where our Christian brothers and sisters are under foreign domination, if you will, outside of Christian leadership, and their lives are in danger. Many of them martyred for their faith. We don't have to deal with that, but very clearly... Right here where we are, there is that foreign domination that we live in. And in a, so in a way, it's, it's, we're, like, we're living like those exiles of the Old Testament. And as we watch that, as we, as, and as we live in that, is there a weeping? Just like the psalmist, weeping? And maybe not even so much to go back to what even might have been some kind of a Christian culture that we had. But it's a weeping for our true home, which is the home that God has promised to us in heaven. Paul, writing in the New Testament, says our, our citizenship is in heaven. It's in heaven. And the life that we live right now is life lived in a foreign context, occupied by sinful, sinfulness and sinful humanity, empowered by the devil. And, you know, if we're really true about our faith, we want to go home. There's that yearning to go home. And unlike the Jews of the Old Testament who had the promised land and then lost it and then wanted to go back to the promised land, we haven't been there yet. 
Our promised land is still very much in the future, but that is our hope that we have. It's the great promise of Scripture. Even Jesus Himself said that He would return and take His followers to be with Him forever. And there would be justice and judgment taking place. Everything would finally be made right. There would be eternity and there would be a home. That's the hope that we as Christians have. And so there's that yearning for that. To one degree or another. You know, looking, looking to that and yearning to go home. Yes, we are called to be in this place right now and make a life here just as Jeremiah told the people you got to make a life there and and live and shine the light and serve and pray for the peace and prosperity there but there's something there's something more there's something more and that causes weeping but it's not just about weeping that the psalmist writes And that's where the psalm takes us into some passions and emotions that are so deep that we struggle with that. Wishing ill on their captors to the point of wanting their infants to be dashed against the rocks. Now, I know this is a psalm that some people read that. Well, I don't even want to deal with that. Or some people, you know, would say, you know, we're just going to skip over that. We'll read the first half of the psalm, but not the last half, because it is so troubling. But we need to deal with that. You see, there's some real anger, if you will, from the psalmist's perspective towards those who have done this to them. He's very clear about that. And it's so strong in him that his expression of that is in something that we find to be Whoa, where's that come from? Wishing the infants to be dashed against the rock. But you know, the Bible acknowledges the reality of anger. Even Jesus got angry. But the key is what we do with that anger. Ephesians, Paul says, be angry, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And in his chapter on this that that Philip Yancey writes, he even talks about this particular psalm. And he he says that, you know, these these are strong feelings that the psalmist has. And he's being honest about that, but he's not taking that action himself. Basically, what he's doing is just dumping on God and expressing those feelings to God rather than taking that action. Himself. The question for us, what do we do with our anger? You know, the psalmist is angry, yes, at those who have who have taken them, but he's not actually taking his anger out on them. He's just expressing that anger to God because he knows, too, that God is the one who says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You find that in Deuteronomy and Paul likes that, too. Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 12. You see, if we can't go to God with whatever feeling we have at the moment, what good is God? We need to be able to be honest with God and express that to God because otherwise we may take it out somewhere else or we may just internalize that and that just eats us up. Better to put it on God than to direct it elsewhere or to just take it and internalize it. 
I mean, do you, do you get upset? Angry may not always be the best word, but certainly upset about seeing things in the world around us. I think God is angry with a lot of it that goes on in the world around us. But what do we do with that anger? What do we do about those who seem to be in control of a world gone awry? For the, against those who stand against us, who would even attack Christians or Christian values. It's natural to want them to be held to account for that, and we know that God is the one who's going to hold them accountable. The issue for us is where and how do we express our anger or when we're upset? Our world today says, man, if you're angry at somebody, go get them. Right? And you jump on them and may not be dashing their children against the rocks, but there are all kinds of ways that we throw rocks. Whether our, you know, just look at politics, it goes on, words going back and forth, but it goes on right at our level too. And social media or whatever it might be that goes on, and incivility reigns in how we express those things. And it even happens within the Christian community. Is that the way to express that? The psalm says, yes, we can weep and we can yearn for home and we can even be passionate about those feelings and be honest before God. But ultimately leave the justice to God. And rather than taking it ourselves and putting it on Facebook or whatever, however we do that, you know, leave it to God. Be honest about it, but leave it to God. And then, one step further, fast forward into the New Testament. And what does Jesus say about the enemies, about those who persecute and ridicule? Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Bless them. Don't curse them. If we're honest about the world that we live in as exiles under foreign domination, if you will, may God find us to be honest about that before Him, but then living as Jesus does. That that light of Jesus would shine even into this dark and foreign world. A light that shines because He willingly came into this hostile world out of his love for us and the line and the light that shines as we wait for his return when we will go home that new jerusalem in revelation 21 is right there that's what we have and that's the promise that we have and what we can yearn for in him to god be the glory would you pray with me father we thank you that you do love us and that you love this world even as dark as it may be sometimes, and as we feel like we are aliens in a difficult place. It's not always easy to take. Yet, Lord, we pray that you would find us faithful to love our enemies, to pray for them, and to live in a way that brings honor and glory to you as we look for home 
that home that you have promised to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.